What is going on, people? Welcome to another episode of A Need to Read, another guest episode. This time, got to sit down with one of my favourite authors, which was mad. I was really left with a massive smile on my face. If you remember episode three, how passionately I spoke about the book Essentialism by Greg McCohen, uh, then you'll definitely understand why I was so excited to have him on the podcast and have a chat with him. The book Essentialism is that now actually sold over a million copies. Um, so, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and I got to speak to him. I was in disbelief. Like I said, left with a massive smile on my face. Love these type of conversations. And I'm just going to let you jump straight into it. And at the start, you can just listen to me explaining to Greg the whole idea behind A Need to Read. So if you don't know it, it's coming up now. A Need to Read, the podcast, is essentially because I found reading about two years ago. Didn't read at all in school. Um, was completely against the idea of bothering. Um, with in fact everything that's important when I was in school and then I found it a couple of years ago and ever since then I've just been shoving it down everyone's throat and my friends and my family <laughs> my friends and family got fed up of it so I was like what well, you know what I'll just put it on the internet and see see essentially who cares and turns out I've been quite fortunate that some people have cared um, so the the podcast is sort of taking off in quite a nice direction and it's a little bit of a fire in me and it's good to be able to sort of connect with authors like yourself it's insane because the third episode of my podcast is solely on essentialism and i was like this is the best non-fiction book that i've read this year um so that's one that i've been shoving down people's throats and and now i've got you on which is brilliant <laughs> i have to apologize to everybody that you've been uh, you've been force feeding this to you will be an essentialist you will do it yeah it's, it's so a- interesting it's an interesting jumping off point because just even what you just said that school is that uh, you didn't want to read in school. Mm. It's really quite a shocking thing, isn't it? And I don't mean yeah. you're shocking. No. I, think it's, I think it's an experience many people have that you, I'll, I'll give you an example of my own life. Yeah. I, I studied French in, you know, in high school, well, yeah. in middle school, in high school, years of it. I never really got into the feeling that I was learning a language. No, I was really just doing this other thing, which is going to school and playing this game and how little can you do in order to survive it and get through it. And you're doing this other thing. And it wasn't until years later that I really was like, oh, I want to learn languages. I want to learn French. I'd like to learn Spanish. You know, that the the actual learning began. And, uh, and there's something of, uh, of an inefficiency there, uh, quite a major one in yeah. traditional schooling. Yeah, um, I definitely, I can relate to that. It's something, languages for me, French and Spanish, have, uh, things that have taken my interest in, in recent years. And I'm, I don't know if that's going to couple with me reading a load of books recently, or I think there's a sense maybe, like I'm, I'm in my mid-20s and I get, get to the point where I'm like, oh no, I definitely don't know enough about enough. <laughs> and and there's there's yeah, a, well, sorry you know, the more you the more you know the more you know you don't know correct right? yes definitely the, the circumference of knowledge is the same as the circumference of ignorance and so as your knowledge expands so does the circumference of ignorance you're aware of the, the enormity uh, of, of what is is unknown i certainly find in my own life now i am i feel um, uh, 
staggeringly uh, uneducated. Yeah, I just, just, what's what's just, the hope for the rest of us, said? <laughs> well, that's no, there's that's a compliment in there somewhere, but I just find, uh, think of the inexhaustible knowledge and wisdom that is possible, and then mm. what we've actually had access to, uh, what, what we've actually taken the time to invest in. And uh, I, I am I'm hungrier to learn now than I've ever been. Uh, yeah. I love to, I remember reading the uh, John Adams biography, uh, which made quite an impression on me by David McCullough. Yeah. And one of the things that inspired me in that was reading about John Adams and, uh, and Jefferson talking about reading. Yes. In their letters to each other. And perhaps there was just competition inherent, but they just rhyme lyrical about what they've been reading. And what mm. they've been reading is, you know, the, is classic literature in the original Greek, yes, uh, tough, in Latin. Uh, they're, they're teaching their children. I mean, John Adams is teaching John Quincy Adams, his son, you know, these, this level of thinking, this level of multiple languages from the youngest age. And it yeah. inspires me. I have a, a one son, three daughters, and it inspires me to think: What can they learn? What is possible? Yeah. What if we don't limit uh, them to? Uh, I don't know to the to the to the norms in traditional education. And it, I think yeah. it's exciting what is possible once you unlock yourself from traditional school and actually yeah. just immerse yourself in the learning process. Yeah, definitely. There's the book by Vishen Lakiani, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, and he talks about sort of culture scapes holding people back. And I think that's definitely something to look at with children, especially because you you learn so much as a child and your brain is able to take that on board. And I think there's actually a part in your book about play, um, which is probably one of my favourite chapters. I think you started off with a quote from Roald Dahl that a little bit of nonsense is cherished by the wisest man. Um, that bit really stuck with me because let's take children, for example, they, they learn so rapidly and they and sort of cognitively they move so fast and creatively they're far more creative than most of us sort of adults. And it is probably down to sort of the, the play factor in it. So if, if you can manage to keep, keep someone playing as an adult, why, why is their brain not going to be able to do what a child's brain could and children are a good experiment for that to ethically try and make them learn as much as possible about the good stuff there's there's some research about this some so nasa approached a couple of researchers wanting them to create a tool for assessing genius mm. they were in the business nasa was in the business of hiring genius and putting it to work on the most uh, you know really the most complex, uh, you know, haven't yet been solved problems. Uh, how do you get to the moon? How do you make this, you know, interplanetary travel possible? I mean, these things are all, you know, none of this has been done. Mm. Uh, and so they wanted to, to, to do this. And so the researchers they brought in came up with a very simple test to assess genius. And it effectively had to do with how many different kinds of solutions can you find to a problem? 
-hmm. and so they, they tested this on a whole variety of, of people uh, and ages and then they started uh, to test it on children starting at five years old and it was when they came back and I'm just pulling from memory now but I think in the sort of high 90s like I think 98% of children age five qualified as genius on their assessment in terms of the number of choice you know ideas and options and possible solutions to problems that they could come up with yeah so they turned it into a longitudinal study and they did it five years later by which point it had dropped I think to 30% and five years later, again, it dropped to 8%. And then at this point, the teachers involved in the study withdrew themselves. They didn't want to do it anymore. They just found it too, too depressing yeah. that the process that they'd gone through uh, hadn't produced, um, you know, more long-term genius in their students. And one of the things that they hypothesize about this is that, um, is that people get taught, you know, not to be creative, not to think, not to play. Uh, yeah. they, they get taught, I think, often through the traditional school process that learning is drudgery, uh, that if you want to do something important, it has to be hard. These are really poor lessons. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. It's... um. I think there's a lot of poor, poor lessons that float about within the schooling system, but sort of quashing sort of creativity and not encouraging people to want to learn. And I think that actually comes to sort of a sense of autonomy with learning. They, they, they might not give the kids enough saying like, this is what we want you to do. Come up with your own solutions. It's like, right, you're going to stand in line here. You're going to go to this lesson, this lesson, this lesson. It's, it's all very structured. And I don't necessarily know if, if structure can always be good. Well, and, and structure to what end? I mean, there, are, there, are, there, there is school, the learning, and then there's school, the structure. And the structure, I think, is often designed and certainly was in its origin uh, to be a industrial age system uh, that was to create uh, people capable of administration uh, within the colonial yeah. empire. You needed people to move into those positions. And so literally you set them as, a, a, as factories, it divided the subjects, uh, really for the first time divided subjects. I mean, prior to this, if you go back and read, uh, you know, Principia Mathematica, you, you find that, um, that, that Newton is, is not dividing subjects in the mm -hmm. way that we do in a traditional school. When he goes off and for two years works in total isolation, another interesting observation, yeah. uh, to produce a breakthrough in thinking that is still, to me, unthinkable. Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, um, how did he do it? It is, it is still to me unfathomable that he in those two years of isolation could leap forward in his thinking so far uh, with such revelatory clarity uh, and produce things that have been so consistent in explaining the movement uh, of, of, of the entire universe. I mean, this is, this is mind boggling. Well, he yeah. didn't do it 
He didn't do it by separation of subjects. He didn't do it by sitting in rows. He didn't do it by having a teacher simply instructing him, this is no. what you need to know, this is when you need to know it, this is what you need to regurgitate in this moment. It, it was clearly a completely different process to that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and with our own children, we, you know, it's funny, we never intended to, uh, to homeschool our children. My wife, Anna, and I were neither homeschooled. But, uh, but as we, as a friend of ours had started homeschooling and, and we started reading some books on the subject, yeah. uh, one, one being The Call to Brilliance, uh, we, we really started to imagine well, what could you create if you didn't have the industrial age school inefficiencies built into the experience? What if you removed that entirely? Uh, what, what, what could you do? And we often, we've often felt in the years since uh, how inefficient our own home education process is. But every time we think about it, we sort of laugh because we realize, yeah, but we're not even competing against an efficient system. If we're competing yeah. at all, it's against one of the most inefficient systems built for learning imaginable. Yeah. Uh, in fact, every year, well, now I'm, on, I'm not, not trying to knock traditional school. That's not the point of this. But every year we, we go through the process of talking to our children. We say every single year, we say, look, it's completely up to you. You want to go back to school, just, just anytime you want, we'll do it. It'll be easier for us. Yeah. There's no problem. Uh, there's no agenda for us. Oh, you have to do this. And so we go through that process annually. And, and one year, my son um, said, oh, I, I think I feel like it this year. And we were like, fantastic. And so we, we enrolled yeah. him in 24 hours. He's enrolled. We put him in school. We, he gets his laptop, do everything. I go and I take him to, to the school. I pick him up uh, at the end of the day. And I'm so curious about his experience. Yeah. And he looks very happy. And he's running to the car. And he, and he, he opens the door. And he throws his bag in. And closes and I think, oh, this is going to be a great fit for him. You know, this must, this must work. And I said, oh, how was it? And he said, Dad, I never want to do that again for the rest of my life. <laughs> he completely was not interested. His observation was this. He said, he said, Dad, I think that I could imagine maybe enjoying being a teacher in that environment. But I don't see how I could enjoy being a student in it. He said, most of the time, you know, in each period was spent explaining what I needed to do in homework later. Yeah. He's an essentialist then. You think you've, <laughs> the science experiment has done well. well. <laughs> but, but out of this, I do think there is, there are some really strong essentialist themes. I mean, he's now 14 years old and he wants to be a biotech engineer emphasizing in, uh, medical within medicine and maybe medical machines yeah. okay i was not coming close even remotely close to that clarity i wanted 14. to be a stuntman <laughs> <laughs> so. well, and, and, and i'm not knocking be wanting to be a stuntman the point of course is just that if you remove the norms that say well you shouldn't be thinking of you cannot be thinking seriously even if you did think about it, you cannot really be making any decisions around that kind of clarity for many years into the future because of the school inefficiencies, this system that has been Spoiled built choice and developed and... over time. Well, just so, yeah. just so, I mean, I mean, uh, so anyway, it's, it, it is fascinating to, to, to watch if you, if you start to think that there's a different way 
uh, to do life is that you can start to look at um, what is essential and what is yeah. just history, what is just built into this into the existing system, what's grown complicated over time. Yeah, it's definitely. Exactly what you can do. Definitely. And that's one of the one of the sort of it's funny that you say that your your son came running in and, and he instantly was like, I don't want to do that ever again. And he's essentially saying no to the whole thing because essentialism for me and sort of what, what I took from it was was the empowering sort of factor of being able to say no to things. Um, and I know this is a concept of essentialism is something you've been working on for about 20 years. Is Have there been stages where you have experienced maybe that discomfort when it comes time to say no and it, and does it take a certain amount of practice so because i know you can't do anything without doing it but when you first started thinking like right well i am now i am an essentialist this is the life i want to do this is going to be my life's work is is making spreading this message was it uncomfortable to start saying no to things and was there any particular thing that you sort of comes to mind an awkward scenario that came up when you had to say no and you would have usually said yes if you hadn't come up with this concept well, I mean, of course, there's an example I share in the book that, uh, that sort of helped to spawn the, the movement at all, which is when I got an email from my boss at the time, said Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need you to be, come to this client meeting. And uh, Friday we were in the hospital, our hours old baby, and uh, instead of being focused on what was clearly the important uh, essential thing, um, and, and these, you know, my wife and, and, and child, uh, I am torn and I'm distracted and I'm being pulled and, 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 and to my shame, I go to the meeting. And afterwards, I remember uh, my boss said, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And I'm not sure that, uh, that the look on their faces evinced that sort of confidence, mm. but even if uh, they had, uh, it's clear I made a fool's bargain uh, that yes. I violated something more important, something less important. And what I learned was if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Yeah. It's one of my favorite quotes sort of from the book. And I remember sort of sharing that on, on the need to read Instagram and someone was like, I don't understand this. Who's going to prioritize your life? So the people you work for, the people that are asking you to do things because you're going to feel that discomfort and saying no. So you just say yes. And, you go along with emotions and instantly that other person is taking control of your diary and they just shove something in there without even clocking it. I think there's so, so many people that would benefit from this book in terms of quite simply even taking it out of a corporate environment and just being able to say no to the simplest things. Let's take, for example, the pubs were open in the UK this weekend. It's like, do you want to go to the pub? I didn't really want to go to the pub. And I didn't say no. And I let myself down. Right. Because in the moment, it's, it's so much easier to say yes in the moment, or at least we feel the social pressure to do it. And, and it, so it doesn't just have to be in a, in a power differential position where somebody is your boss or your boss's boss. Uh, and it feels so unthinkable to people to push back in those situations. It can be just in our own social group. Uh, it can be just to ourselves. Uh, I just... I just started an essentialism podcast and one of the people that I interviewed, I don't know when this will, will air, but uh, I interviewed and, and did it in a way a sort of intervention, in fact, with um, a nurse uh, who works in the NHS and is on the front lines of this COVID uh, yeah. pandemic. 
And I was really interested to talk to her. I, you know, I've, I've interviewed some, you know, some big names, uh, you know, in, in authors and, and business leaders and so on. But I, yeah. my heart is actually with this, you know, just working with individuals about how they can apply essentialism in their own world. And she, when I asked her, I said, well, what is something essential in your life that you're under-investing in? And I said, what's your first thought? And her first thought was, was family. And she said, that surprises yeah. me because normally I'm really good at that. She said, I'm showing up physically for them. Uh, but when I actually go to be with them, I'm there, but I'm not present. She said, yeah. she, the way she said it, she said, when I go to sort of the saucer of my emotions, of my love, of my, when I go to that saucer, there's like nothing to give. Yeah. And so we talked all about how she can, how she needs to be able to protect the asset that is her first. Yeah. Uh, and that as she does that, she'll be able to better serve her family, the people that matter most to her, and then be more selective in what she does in work. There's yeah. way more that she can possibly do in work all the time. And especially over these coming months, the chances are it will be the same or greater as uh, she goes into the winter months. And so if you, if you get that wrong, you're going to be completely burned out. Uh, and, and really it's an unsustainable situation and you can cause a lot of damage in, in, your, in your attempt to make things better. So prioritization isn't just with people out there. It's also not just saying no to yourself, but really working out what your yeses need to be yeah. so that you manage your own life and take more responsibility for that prioritization so that you can then continue to give to others and to contribute better to others, uh, but in more selective, thoughtful ways. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like sort of boundaries within a relationship and, and you've got to set those sort of with yourself. And, and it's interesting that it was, um, one of the nurses in the NHS because you have to be a certain type of person to be a nurse or, or a midwife or a doctor and to work frontline and public services they love like they don't do it for money it's you're very rarely making a lot of money unless you're sort of a consultant or a doctor working privately right and they feel almost an, an attachment to to the task and especially this is COVID's essentially been like a world war for for the sort of medical profession. So it's been time for them to step up and it's going to be a really tough adjustment for them sort of easing out of that to not have left a little bit of their soul in the hospital and back in March when it's, it's kind of just stuck there a little bit and in April and coming out of it now, this it's a very good time for um, them to be listening to something like your podcast, speaking to, someone who is working on the front line, give them a few tips on how they can declutter the, the scribble that, that we, you say on the front of your book is, is their life. Well, and one of the things that was curious for her was to discover that every day she is spending and, and her whole career spending time investing in people. Why? Because she sees them as inherently enormously valuable. Uh, yeah. that she thinks that their lives matter <laughs> and suddenly discovering that she probably hasn't been valuing her own life at the same level as each of the people she serves. And so 
Of course, serving others is admirable and there's nothing in essentialism to suggest we shouldn't. It, no. it's, it's a perspective of contribution. What is our highest contribution? But as part of that, you say, well, you've got to value yourself first, yeah. in fact. Not more than others, but you've got to get the order right because otherwise you just get stretched too thin constantly. You get burned out. Uh, so you can't contribute anymore. You start to be busy, but not productive because you're not yeah. being discerning about what to do and what not to do. And so you become um, sort of a, a vehicle for other people's agenda for you. you yeah. You've got no sense of your own clarity, your own purpose, what you want to do in the world. And so someone pours their agenda into yours through email, through a text, through social media, uh, through an agenda in the mainstream media, through yeah. you know, other people have agenda for you, and so if you don't have an agenda for yourself, a point of view for yourself, then you'll become a function of other people's plans for you. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like it, it, people need to look in at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, reach that sort of top pinnacle of of self actualization, and that's the point in which they can be like, okay, well. I'm going to do some meaningful work now that I can completely take care of myself. Now let's try and bring some other people's um, pyramids up, as it were. Yes, I think that's right. And, and I need to point out, I think, that Maslow himself changed his hierarchy before the end of his life, but it never got translated broadly into the publications. And mm. so, uh, and so the, it's a funny example of, of a sort of fixed paradigm where 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 he he learned but but the rest of us didn't learn yeah. what he had to say and so what he changed is that he added one point to the pyramid so yeah. the so it's exactly as we read it in the literature and and it works its way up to to, to self actualization but then the next one was self transcendence but it's only possible uh, as you get to self-actualization, as you get to clarity yourself, you say, okay, well, it's not about me. I want to serve others. But that's not the same as saying, I don't matter. I'm not actualized. I don't have a, a, a sense of my own mission that I'm just serving other people. That isn't mm. self-transcendence. Uh, that's, uh, that's like something like codependency or something. It, it, it's, just, it's just a devaluing of ourselves and therefore... Uh, I think we we can get really stuck uh, in in making progress in our essential mission in life. Yeah, you know, what we came here to do—that's got to be—that's a discovery process. We've got to discern that. We've got to create space for that. Yeah. Uh, even if even if we were to start with a minute a day, if somebody isn't spending any time at all on that, and you say, "I'm going to spend one minute uh, in in the morning, just thinking about you know what." What, yeah, what do you want? Important today. Yes, that's right. You said it. That's a great way of saying it. What do What do you want? Mm. What, when I ask that question to people, I am surprised at how often they cannot give an answer to it. There's um there's a there's an interesting thing that I've I've thought of before, where people people don't know themselves as well as they'd like to think, and that time to themselves to work out that sort of higher purpose or, or that sort of transcendence and to be able to help other people they don't know themselves because they don't spend enough time with themselves because they're all constantly distracted and maybe it's self-inflicted distraction and they sort of reach out for that. Um, but 
when you when you meet a new person you ask them oh hi how you doing and that's pretty much as far as the conversation goes mm-hmm. when you become better friends with that person your conversations get deeper and sort of more intellectual and a lot of people are still at the surface level just with themselves so all they're doing in the morning is yeah how you doing could be better okay sweet let's just get on with it whereas <laughs> right. they're, they're not being to be cliche their own best friend and and checking in on a deeper level like all right what do i want today oh i don't know actually let's think about it and they sit in for 10 yeah. minutes and that's right slowly it, it builds exactly up exactly that you, you have meetings with other people we need a meeting with ourselves and even if we start like i'm suggesting with even a one minute meeting mm. uh, each morning and we say well how are you okay let's do a little quick you know evaluation mind body heart spirit then okay what do you want yeah you don't even have to be able to answer those questions but asking them, having the minute, having a moment will, I think, over time have the power to really shift both the direction and the trajectory of people's lives. Yeah. Okay, so let's do it. Let's do this. Are you game for this? That's something I'm game. You I'm do? game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So tell me something right now that's essential for you, right? That you're under investing. Yeah, I don't I wouldn't be able to put put a finger on that because I'm most days I do I do something that I like I don't do things I don't want to do essentially I feel like I I've read quite a lot about like like stillness is the key Ryan Holiday the Tao of Pooh recently essentialism so there's, there's a lot in me that's relishing in the stillness and not doing all the time so I don't, maybe it's not the pressure of that maybe it's just a pressure that I feel that is there that isn't actually there at all You've just saved so me I, some money on therapy this week, I think, Greg. Yeah, well, that's what, <laughs> well, that's what we want to do here. So you're telling me, I think, I don't, I don't want to want to be doing other things right now. My goal is to be more accepting of, of, of my current situation, mm. not rushing off to other things, to not feel like I have to consume every minute i've got 16 hours and everything needs to be regimented yeah. and thought i want to be able to relax yeah more is yeah. that right i think so so i think what i heard because you certainly had a, a, a physical reaction when i said the word relax yeah Ooh. yeah you just, <laughs> what's you just, that? You did it again. <laughs> yeah what's that that's interesting how how do, it, it sounds like a funny thing doesn't it but sometimes for people, especially if they've been wired, trained um, into productivity first thinking, they do find the idea of relaxing quite hard. Oh, it's uh, it stressful. Lying Stress- down. Yeah. If it gets to a stage where, let's say, for example, in a day where I could easily have a nap and I probably need a nap because my sleep's never optimal. Um, and I could lie down for it, but I just can't switch off. And the thing is, I, I meditate. Like, I, I meditate for 20 minutes a day. I'm relatively good at just focusing on the breath. But I still, the idea of it, I'm like, well, let's just get up now. Let's, let's just do something now. <laughs> that, that, that urge just to do something. That's, it's, it's interesting. You're telling me that, that you definitely have the time to sleep. You mm. definitely have the time to nap. But actually, you're trained to be in quote unquote productive mode all the time to be doing something or to want to be 
I think I think there's a difference between me being productive or whatever my idea of productive and to just sort of yearn for being productive. You're not saying that you're spending 16 hours a day being productive, but you feel like you're supposed to be on all the time. You're always mm. wanting to be productive. Yes. It, it's like I should be productive all the time. Yeah, correct. I'm not productive all the time, but I should be. That's yes. the aspiration I have. That's what, that's what, that's what a good life looks like. Mm. Yeah. So the idea of taking a nap, there's something within you that makes you go, no, 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 come on. Yeah. That's, that's what, what is it? What do you, what do you think about that? When I say that, oh, take a nap, you think what? Well, let's say for example, today. So I got up this morning, went for a walk, had breakfast, made a couple of posts for the podcast, edited a video, put together an episode, went for a lake swim, came back from the lake swim, read for a bit. And then I got to about half past three and I was like, okay, right. Well, I have a nap. I've been up since five. I'll, I'll lie down. And I always put like a timer on a podcast or something for 15 minutes. And if I'm not asleep by the end of that 15 minutes, then okay, I don't need a nap. So end of the podcast came off and I was like, oh, brilliant. Why didn't you need to nap? Because it felt like you needed to nap, but it didn't happen. And is it a concern for you? Do you, do you want to be able to turn it off and rest, relax? I think it's the thought of it that's quite nice, not necessarily doing it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I have a, a friend who was um, a writer about it in essentialism. He, he was Ernst & Young entrepreneur of the uh, award winner. Mm. Um, uh, you know, entrepreneur of the year. And he, he set up one of the first for-profit microloan programs in the world. Uh, Muhammad Yunus was one of his mentors and he's just wow. incredibly driven and successful and so on. And then uh, there were a series of, of, of effects. He found that his, uh, his body was shutting down. It was just like not working anymore. And so he ends up having to resign from his position as leader of his company and, and yes. change his whole life and shift it around uh, in fact, it's the same person that I was just talking about before who ended up, that's why he ended up homeschooling his children with his wife is because he had to take this time out forced yeah. involuntarily. And so they decided to try and design good things around it uh, and, and good things, you know, did come from it. But he was the one who first said to, said, said to me, look, you know, my whole life's experience, all that pain, all that stuff can be summarized in this single idea. Look, you've got to learn to protect the asset. Mm -hmm. and one of the things he says now he says he says if i'm working with overachievers i literally say to them here's what to do if i say to an overachiever he said run a marathon fine easy they know how to do that they know how to set the goal they know how to make it happen mm -hmm. they know how to push themselves how to challenge themselves how to set up the routine how to go do it how to push past the limits they know all of that uh, he said, what, what he literally said, so we're just right on the money with this. He said, is, uh, is I challenge him, just go take a nap. He says, that's harder for them to do than going to run the marathon. Yeah. But it's totally necessary for them to take on that challenge because it's in this, it's in learning these 
these parallel skills, the, 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 the ability to relax when you need to relax, the ability to sleep when you need to sleep uh, is, uh, is critical. But here, yeah. here's the thing, when I listen to you, I'm not sure what you want yet that you don't, that, you know, what's essential don't. to you that you're not investing in? Is it taking a nap? Is it something you want to learn how to do? Um, okay. Yeah, actually, let's take, let's take, um, writing, for example, I have, I have the courses. I haven't started them. Okay, good. Now we're, now we're, now we're onto something. You've got (laughs) the courses, you want to write. Why do you want to write? I have, I have the ideas. I have the chapters. I have the title. I have, I've had a vision of, of this particular book for, maybe 18 months or so now and actually wow. I, 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 I can picture the day when i first spoke to someone about it and it, it was about a year ago i was in norway with my sister and i said to her about this idea and she was like oh why would anyone want to buy your book i was like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough but you wait and see <laughs> um okay that's interesting so you had a moment a, cr- a creative moment you had this insight you want to write a book you can see it in your mind's eye Okay, I get that that's kind of why, but give me why do you want to write that book? Okay, it's sitting there, ready to do, but why do you want to do it? The freedom in which potentially a well-sold or or best-selling, or not a best-selling, but okay, a best-selling book um, to just just throw it out there. Uh, The freedom, the freedom which that'll give me in life to to travel to have that sort of freedom of movement and to essentially not have to put a shirt and tie on ever again unless i'm at a wedding or a funeral so for you there there's connected to this um to this book and and just writing in general is the is the financial independence is linked for you in this yeah and i think i i have good content to to get down and i think starting a podcast has been encouraging in that sense because people are like oh i quite like how your brain works and like, oh that's really kind of you thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> yes i'd like an hour like i'd like to put some of how my brain works down on paper and see if i can reach people through that which i completely yeah. you know i understand now a, a bit of what what you're trying to do so it's aligned with your mission but it's also aligned with your uh, with margin you know your mm. ability to go to create income so both of these reasons it's very aligned for you to be able to do this okay so You've had this for a year. You've written how much over that year? The title of about 12 chapters and about three paragraphs. <laughs> right, good. So you're three paragraphs in, uh, which I'm not knocking, uh, but nevertheless, you know, you're not getting to it. It sounds like as much as you'd like. What does success look like to you? Meaning what would you want to be doing every day or every week towards this goal? What would you... What's the investment you wish you were making? I think it's, it's a case for me. I'm almost tying it to or sort of coupling it with being out of the UK. So, for example, um, Bali in Indonesia is opening up September the 11th. I have a flight booked for the 13th. That's where in my mind, I'm like, that's where I'm writing this over a year's sort of period. I'm going to wake up five in the morning do whatever I want, go to jiu-jitsu, surfing, yoga, meditate, write, and build the podcast, build the audience, and just set aside 
a few hours a day. Although I was listening to your podcast the other day and realized you shut yourself away in a room from four in the morning until about 12 o'clock every day. Um, so I kind of rethought how I might need to approach it. Yeah, that's it's interesting. The, the, so it sounds like you have in your mind that you want to write this in a particular place in a particular moment in the future. So you have that in your mm. mind. I'm going to do it from September to September, doing it in a year. That yeah. doesn't sound like the worst idea to me. Uh, do you want to be writing it before then? Do you want to be writing it now? I don't. I don't think so. So have. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're back in circles there. <laughs> we, are, we are. We are. We are now three for three. <laughs> what you're telling me is that this is something you have a plan for. Mm. You don't want to do it. You're yeah. telling me. I think. I'm doing the things I want to do right now. I don't have anything essential that is, that is not, that is not, that I'm not investing in. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. I think, I think essentially, I think that question and, and particularly that answer is maybe something people are reluctant. I think, I guess, I guess I'm reluctant to answer that question that way to maybe not seem not arrogant, but just like, or to not seem too content. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, I do know what you mean. I do know uh, what you mean. And, and, and I think there's something revealing in what you're describing in a positive way. I mean, when I think about that, your description of your day, uh, getting up early, going, swim in the lake, I've read mm. these books, I lay down, and if I, if I need the nap, I can take the nap. Mm. If I don't, I don't. I mean, I think these are a lot of the, the, the pieces are, are in place for you. Uh, mm. Yes, I want to write, but I've got a plan for that and a space for doing that. I don't have mm. to be worrying about that every moment. It's a great illustration, in fact, of saying I want to do it, but I don't have to do everything now. Yeah. Uh, of course, I can't do everything now. So uh, I want to create space to be able to do this and to work on it. Tell us about mm. the book. What can you tell us about it? It's essentially... <laughs> It's not going to be called essential. It's not going to be called essentialism or anything to do with essential. Um, it's just going to be stories from my life that I I feel are funny, or humorous, or just entertaining or deep that can I can provide a spin on from what I've learned from books and how maybe a situation could have potentially gone better. <laughs> what what's what's? Can you tell me the title? Lessons from an ordinary life. Yeah, I like it. You could you could have extraordinary lessons from an ordinary life. Yeah, I'm gonna have to bleep bleep these out so no one no one steals it from me. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's the idea. And I guess what you're saying is right in terms of from an essentialist point of view. I'm I'm pretty impulsive as a person, and that goes from day to day. So any any feeling of something that I want to do, I'm I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where. Well, I mean, I'm not fortunate enough that the world shut down, but the world shut down at the moment, and I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I've got the necessary su support and people around me to encourage the podcast, and which frees me up to be able to do all the things I want to do, pretty much, apart from sort of within the restrictions of the the lockdown quarantine rules. Yeah, I, I remember there was a, a YouGov poll that came out that said just 9% of people want to go back to mm. how things were before. Yeah, uh, I've, I've seen changes in people that I would never expected and are so sort of welcome. Like my, my sister uh, works in London 
lives in London. She's come back to Dorset. I live in Dorset um, for lockdown. She was gutted at the start. She was going to have to take a pay cut. She was going to have to hold off buying a house in London until two years time because of the implications. We're three months into it and she's deciding that she wants to move out of London, live in Winchester. And she's, I think she's pretty much completed on a house there. So the the compl- the quality of life in terms of yeah it's it's going to change massively because winchester's a lovely little town commuter town and i think the london life is is hectic and there's a certain sort of sell-by date on that and it's nice to see maybe like three months of stillness and sort of having not too much going on not client dinners every night people come to these conclusions of what they actually want there's there's a um you know i feel like what this time has been is like involuntary essentialism uh, you know not unkindly the universe said to us all you, know, you just go to your room and you have yeah. a good think about this and you sit with yourself for a minute and ask more than how are you <laughs> <laughs> that's right well you, you, people didn't so to speak, they didn't have a choice. They just, you have got to think. You've got to pause at least a little more than normal because mm. life is not what it was before. Every person, effectively every person on the planet has had a reprioritization yeah. period. You know, what they've made of it is obviously different and it's hard to predict exactly how it will be. But when I talk to people about it just going back to how it was before, including this nurse I was mentioning before, she had like a physical reaction to that saying, Oh, I just don't, I just, that sounds awful for it to go yeah. back to how it was before. Isn't, you know, that, that, that's, that's a very interesting thing that people just discover. I don't think that's the life I want, even if they don't want it to remain as it yeah. is now, it's a chance to pivot into a different kind of life going forward. Yeah. It's a little sort of through the looking glass of like, okay, well maybe we can meet in the middle here in terms of like people let's take time with family people are spending maybe more time with their family doing the sort of the wholesome activities as opposed to sort of running through the motions calling their mum once a week in the morning saying oh how am i how are you mum how's work yeah cheers bye whereas now it's like okay well the government said you can go for a walk with your family <laughs> everyone's jumping in the air going for walks with families they might not have done that for years it's allowed people to sort of connect at a deeper level and i think it's encouraged people to do things maybe they never thought they would do like say your essentialism podcast that's that's come out within maybe was it a month ago that it launched or just yeah, under two, two weeks ago two weeks two weeks ago yeah is that something you'd considered prior to covid sort of shutting the world down yeah it, it, it actually it was i mean i know mm. i know the point you're making and it is a valid point but I, it was something that was that that had been in you know, as a possibility for many years, but actually starting in, in January, it had been part of a, an official strategy that, uh, and partnership that I was working with. Nevertheless, you know, I'm working on a new book. Uh, I'm doing this podcast. The, these two things are my, mm. you know, my, my creative endeavors at this point. Yeah. And I think two things, I mean, really, a couple of things to say about that. One is that every day I'm writing this book, has a deadline and my deadline for delivery is in August and mm. every day I write it I think what was your plan Greg you know like what what if, if it hadn't been COVID how how were you really going to do this uh, when I wrote essentialism I went into monk mode and mm. I hadn't really done that 
on this time. And so I didn't have a, a stronger deadline this time around. So yeah. there was some fluidness with it. But that fluidness, I was leaning into it. Well, we'll just get to it. We'll get to it. And so it was happening, but not, uh, you know, not with the, the, the level of solitude that is required to mm. be able to write, hopefully, a not rubbish book. <laughs> I'm sure it will not be rubbish. Well, you know, from, from your from your from your lips to God's ears. I mean, I, I, I uh, you know, it's one needs a better mantra than that. But it's been yeah. a mantra for me. Don't write a rubbish book. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, and, I might take that one from you. I'll try. So many rubbish books you see. So it's uh, it's it's clearly really possible for it to yeah. happen. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, and the other thing is that it, it has been this opportunity to be creative in a way that I think I just wouldn't have been able to be so singular. Uh, and so to me, it has been a great opportunity. Yeah. And I think, of course, it hits people in different ways, but I think for many, many people I speak to, they, they want to say that they feel guilty saying it. Yes, they do. And, and I don't mean like everybody says, well, it's very privileged of me to say this. And, and I suppose it is, but I'm talking about people of a whole range of socioeconomic backgrounds, of cultural backgrounds, of racial backgrounds, saying that they're saying the same thing. It's almost like it's the big secret mm. is that we, we actually like vast majority of people are going, this is, this is better than before. I don't want to stay here. This isn't going to be the end, but I don't want that. This has been better. This yeah. has been healthier. Yeah. This is, I, I went, I went, we had to get a couple of our bikes fixed and, and it was, it was down there. Uh, they had a sign on the door that said that the, the, the demand for bike in fixing, buying bikes, all of this has tripled under this. And they said, no one predicted it, even within the biking industry. Nobody thought, oh, suddenly COVID's going to mean yeah. everybody's getting their bikes fixed and buying new bikes and getting out there. That alone is a pretty amazing unintended yeah. consequence of what's and, going on and the good thing is if you haven't bought a bike now as soon as this is over you'll definitely be able to pick one up on the cheap for those people <laughs> that they're just like people will fall back in to that old routine as soon as they're allowed to they'll there will be those people that have really loved this opportunity to sort of chill and, and not necessarily chill, just, just be still and be calm and do those wholesome activities. But as soon as maybe that paycheck flashes up and that, that opportunity is there again, they're going to be straight back on it, like fox to a hound or hound to the fox. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it, there is something to be, you know, it's going to be curious about that. What do we really learn uh, from the experience and who, and who learns it? Uh, but I, I, I see the, the, the possibility within me is that it can be the great reset. Uh, maybe mm. it won't be for the whole of society, but it can be for the individual. Yeah. And even if the, re the reset isn't, isn't like, oh, I'm going to completely live a different life than I lived before, it's the opening of a possibility that there even is an alternative life. Yeah. I just, um, another person I just interviewed, another, a couple um they they'd reached out to me and the wife had reached out to me because the husband who's an eye surgeon uh was was just his life was just discombobulating 
and he had these um, rashes were getting on his hands and he had so no time at all to even be able to mm-hmm. go take himself to the doctor to see what's going on. So this is yeah. threatening his career, uh, his ability to contribute. He, he said, he, he, she told me, I, I would sit, he would sit with his head in his hands and say, oh, so much, I cannot do it, oh, I can't mm. do it all. And then he would just stand up and be like, but I, you know, I have to. And he would go back to his life as it was. So they take this, uh, this long road trip and they read Essentialism. This is how mm. they, why they reached out to me. They make a plan while they're reading the whole thing together, this two day drive. And he comes up with just a couple of adjustments. He says, okay, I'm going to email my, everyone at the office and say, look, we've got to change the criteria for who, which patients I work with in the past. I've just worked with anyone who's ever come to me. I just stay with them forever. Mm. Uh, is it, but from now on, we need to just have the, I only work with the people that only I can serve. So yeah. I'm going to serve the right people. So that, that is a better contribution, but also I can pull back so I can get healthy and well myself. Everybody supports him. He, yeah. he goes, he's, he's on the elder board at his church. And he goes and renegotiates there and he says, look, I, you know, I want to keep serving, but I can't serve in the way I've been in the past. You know, yeah. I need to step down from this. And they rene- renegotiates there as well. He starts riding his bike. He starts, uh, you know, getting sufficient sleep. This is yeah. his, this is what his life is, is like. Well, a couple of months later, uh, it, it, one of his business partners, maybe not a couple of months later on, uh, one of his business partners in the office uh, retires with just a month's notice. And so suddenly all these patients suddenly flood to him. And his wife said originally to me, but then when I talked to them, they both confirmed this. They said, they said for them, that could have really finished him off where he was mm. physically. If he'd suddenly had that influx of stress and pressure. Uh, and so she concludes that essentialism really was not just life changing, but life saving for him. Yeah. And the, but the real key was that when I interviewed him and got his side of the story, he just said to me, Greg, honestly, he said, I didn't know there was another way to do life. No. I just didn't know that. So here is this successful, driven, you know, good person uh, who spent his whole life trying to make a difference, realizing I, I need, there's another path. There is another way to do this. And so that's what I think this involuntary essentialism has done through COVID is yeah. that it introduces to people, there is another path. You yeah. can take a different approach to making a difference, a different way of living. Yeah. And, and I think that for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people, there'll be no putting it back into the original packaging. No. You're like that, there were that you've had it won't fit anymore. It won't fit anymore. There's a taste of something that you say, Well, I don't know how to make it all work yet. I don't know all the details of it, but I'm not going back. You yeah. can't put me back in that, even as yeah. I'm going to try and have to figure out what the future looks like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is it's an interesting way to put it, and I hadn't thought of it that it is an involuntary sort of essentialism that's, that's being forced upon us, and I really like that and fair play for that guy saying that you've essentially saved his life. Cause that must be sort of what you did it for, not necessarily in a corporate environment, but just his, his life is just changed because of something that you've written and that you've brought to the world. So you should, you should be really proud of yourself for that. That's really cool. No, it's, it's very nice of you to say it. I, uh, I, I think that books are not entirely dead things. 
No, um, definitely not. We need to make it cool again to read. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I like that. And 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 uh, and on that, they they only get to be fully alive when someone picks them up. Like they're sitting there. It's like they have half a pulse or something. Mm. They have a pulse, but it's not. They're not awake yet. Maybe that's the metaphor. And then you pick it up and you bring your light, you know, your energy to it, and suddenly. This, there's like two living organisms going on. I, I'm yeah. amazed that the, the the power, the idea that these this good couple is was on this road trip while I was, you know, who knows what I was doing that day, right? Whatever mm. else I was doing, well, I wasn't reading, writing the book that day. I wasn't talking to them that day. But they're in, you know, having this important moment happening in their life is is very inspiring to me, and it keeps happening yeah. sometimes in a very public, not public, but but you know, with, with famous people, it will happen, right? Uh, Jack Nicholas, I just found, has read the book a couple of times, and I thought well, that's that's just so crazy, cool. right? And then while I'm on golfing for some reason, uh, uh, you know, McElroy, you know, number one golfer in the world right now, is, is, is read Essentialism, and in fact, just was on the podcast. This is why it's on my mind. Somebody sent yeah. it to me, talking about how his swing, he is trying to essentialize his swing because of reading the book, and. These moments, those aren't the most profound moments, but they're signals of something profound, which is that if you can write, so this is hopefully encouragement for you in your mm. book journey, if you can write and get the best of your thinking and soul and experience, mm. you, you can have what I would call residual impact, residual goodness. Mm. You, you serve once by writing it, but then it can live on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and as I write this next book, I am, I, I, I actually very, um, inspired and sometimes a bit stressed by it <laughs> to be honest, but the yeah. thought, you, you know, so essentialism just, um, just, you know, I, I found out recently that, that, uh, you know, a million people have bought a copy of essentialism. And, I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. It was a break. It was a breakthrough <laughs> moment, you know, I, and, and I never expected that. And, and, but I had this picture in my mind. I, I realized when I was sitting there quietly on my own, you know, in monk mode, writing that book, every word I wrote, it was a strange thing. I don't know if you can go there with me, but each word, a million people are reading that word as you write it. You know, like, yeah, yeah. the weird sensation. The You're idea. collaborating with people unbeknowingly all over the world. For, all over. Forevermore all now. This, this yeah. book will be available. This, the paperback it's it's here it's objective it's real people will be able to buy that forever yeah and and as i writing this new book the feeling of i'm trying to write each word almost on behalf of i mean i have no no, no expectation that this book will be you know do as well as essentialism but but the idea that you're writing each word on behalf of other people that you'll never meet out yeah. there somewhere who are ready for it you know, when the, when the reader is ready, the book arrives. Yes. And, 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 and my sense of, I have a sense of stewardship, as I say, it's sometimes on mm. the edge of stress, but it's like I have a real responsibility in carefully writing those words because, because someone out there, someone out there might really be waiting for them. Listen to this. Let me yeah. tell you a story. A, I haven't shared this story in years, but I, I, one of my mentors, um, um, is, is uh, um, Hanks was his name. Um, I can't remember his, his first name. He's passed away years ago now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he he once told me a story 
he had this, uh, this friend he worked with, this uh, older man, and he, he got really close with him. His name's Marion D. Hanks is the person who told me this story. Yeah. And he said that one day he, his friend didn't come into the office. And that was so unusual that he wasn't there by a certain time that he just immediately left the office and went to his house. And he knocks on the door and there's, there's no answer. So he, he actually lets himself in. Like, this is their relationship as he knows him well enough. And he finds him in the bathroom stuck under the sink. He'd fallen down there hours and hours before and couldn't get up, right? He's like, he's injured, he's, he's, he's in trouble. And he sort of jokingly says to him, he says, oh, you know, what are you doing down there? You know? Yeah. And, his, and he responds, he says, I was waiting for you. <laughs> and they laugh, you see. And then he says, the, the fellow is, is there as he's helping you. He says, no, really, he says, I was waiting for you. And there's something profound in that story to me. Yeah. Where, where he knew that his friend, Marion Hanks, would turn up. He knew yeah. that even though he could no longer do anything, that he was in a really actually pretty awful situation, right? It does happen to people, mm. especially if they get, if they get elderly. Um, and, 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 he, and he did turn up. And I feel like that with books is that, yeah. that as you write them, if you write them with the right end in mind, if you write them with the reader in mind, not your own mind in mind, if, you, if you're thinking about them and serving them and caring about them, that every word, uh, you know, you're, yeah. you're writing, you, you can think of that person somewhere saying, I was waiting for this, you know, yeah. I needed this. In your book, when there's someone needs that. Yeah. So every day you're writing, maybe you need a little extra motivation. They're, they're, they're waiting for you. Yeah. And it'll, it'll, it'll bless their life when they have it. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's great advice. I like, I like that. And I really like that story. I think there's definitely, there's a nice sense of what a lot of people almost look at as a bit woo woo of the, the universe or people turn up at a certain time. And a lot of people don't trust in that. And I think through reading, I've developed a sense that stuff does pop up when it needs to. And I mean, I read essentialism at the start of, um, lockdown when it was like that's when it first sort of came to me and that's when I picked it up and read it and I think I, I identify quite a lot with it and there's definitely books that I've read that I've I've looked oh essentialism like I've just picked up deep work um by Cal Newport yeah. and I can't no, help but think of essentialism yeah um I think it's just nice that the the, the book is come to me and, I, and i'm glad that it has because i wouldn't have messaged you if i hadn't i wouldn't have you on the podcast wouldn't get that bit of writing advice from you it, it's the sort of knock-on effects that maybe someone else reading essentialism could have and that's the exciting thing I, I guess maybe for you as an author that you don't know the effect this will have on someone's life and it, it might just be the most sort of profound realization that they ever have yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that when you when you get into the business of writing uh, and writing books, you're in, you're in a serious business, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean you take yourself too seriously in the process. No. That's not the point. But you're in you're in the you're you know I, I've something that I'm exploring in this new book um, just just in the last week or so mm. is the the distinction between linear work and 
residual work, right? Linear results and residual mm. results. With linear results, you start every day from zero. And some work is like, that. okay, you get paid, mm. work one hour, you get paid one hour. That's, that's yeah. a residual result. I mean, a linear result. Um, with, writing is clearly a realm of residual results. Yeah. I mean, here we are doing a podcast, right? You, you do it once, but somebody can listen to it many times. Many different people can listen to it. Yeah. I had a very proud moment with the podcast that, that when it just dropped the trailer, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I was telling my family, oh yeah, it's uh, it just dropped the trailer. And without me asking them to, you know, my older children are older enough now that they're listening to podcasts yeah. and stuff. And so they all start, they all start, they all went there, all searched for it, they downloaded it. And like yeah. all of a sudden in the room, three people were listening to the trailer, which is my voice, you know? Yeah. So it was weird, actually. It was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It started <laughs> and, it, and there they are doing it. And in that moment, that was very profound because I, again, it was this moment of multiplication of effort where you say one time doing it and now look how easy that was. They could all just listen to it. And suddenly you say, well, a million people can listen to it. It doesn't take any more work, but the impact no. is much greater. Writing is to me, one of the most profound examples of this. They, that writing can last Right. We have, of course, examples of writing lasting thousands of years. And yeah. it's completely different than just having a conversation with somebody. The impact's an unbelievable difference. Yeah. Uh, and, and so and so in any any of our lives, wherever we can start to do a little writing, whether that's uh, keeping a journal, something I advocate pretty strongly yeah. for. Dave McCullough says, if you want your voice to matter, uh, to be to be like one in a million in your generation. All you have to do is keep a journal, an honest account of your life and what it's really about. And, and then you put in your will that it will be given uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, some, some major library, library of Congress. Yeah. Or, or, and you just will it to them. And then you, because nobody else in your generation was keeping a journal, and of those that did, nobody was willing them to a public place. Yeah. Uh, you, you, those in future that are trying to make sense of, you know, 2020 and what was going on in COVID, they will mm. be tapping into your, your paper account of that period. And so yeah. this is exactly what happens when we're trying to make sense of 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the 1812 uh, pandemic. We're going back to original sources, which means mm. journals written often by people who never expected to be profound or, or have long-term impact, writing. And Frank's diary is a oh, exactly. example of that. A, four, a 14 year old girl exactly. started writing a diary has become one of the biggest probably selling books ever or the most known about books ever. When, when, when I took my, when I travel, I travel most of the time with one of my children. And when we went, when I went to Amsterdam, I brought my eldest two girls with me and they, they required reading before we went was that they would read Anne Frank's diary. And then we yeah. went to the museum. Of course it's so profound. And of course it's so touching that it is a 14 year old girl. And maybe we say, well, of course, it couldn't be us. We couldn't be profound in that way because, you know, circumstances are different for her than for us. And that's true. Yeah. But we can still be a disproportionately impactful person if we shift from this linear effort. Yeah. Each day it comes over, it just dies to residual results where we do things once that have a long-term impact. Yeah. And I think lives change when they start when they pick up that principle and start living it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Oh, it's amazing. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of time, Greg, and, and there were three questions that I was, I'd intended on asking you and they were all centered around books. Um, 
and it doesn't really matter that we haven't got to them um because i i just love the conversation that we've had today and coming from a man that's written a book essentially about saying no um i'm honored to have you on the podcast that that's um to sort of start with there but if you could just give me maybe your top non-fiction book and a top novel sort of the one that stood out for you most from from your life um okay so top non-fiction book first essentialism uh, excluded oh yeah for sure <laughs> you surely you don't have people say their own book <laughs> no you, no you, that would that would be the worst <laughs> although i do remember an author do did answer that i was once at a keynote somebody asked the author asked the author and they they did say their own book and that wasn't a lot um uh, okay so so well a favorite a favorite right now is um, I've mentioned it in this podcast, but is John Adams. I mean, just read that mm. by David McCullough. Twice I've talked about him today, but, uh, but he's such a he's. I was just speaking with his wife just recently, and uh, he's not very well now, mm. uh, unfortunately. But he's two Pulitzer. He's won two Pulitzer Prize awards. He's one of the yeah. terrific writers, and it's a fascinating time in history. He's the only pretty much either either the only or pretty much the only uh, founding father uh, who didn't own slaves uh, and the reason oh. he didn't was religious convictions and both yeah. he and his son uh, both both future presidents uh, both felt out of moral conviction uh, that it was immoral to own slaves i mean that's it yeah. they just felt that they felt that <laughs> these were people and people shouldn't be slaves the end yeah. uh, which probably took like a that, lot back then well, exactly. It was a completely different, it was, but that is so much John Adams. I mean, mm. for those that have watched Hamilton, you know, John Adams gets, uh, is only mentioned very briefly as uh, King George talks about him as being this, uh, that little man who came and talked to me. Uh, mm. And he was a little man and he was absolutely just, a, it was just a, uh, a weakling of, a, of a, an interaction when he went to meet with King George. At the time, America was, had no money and was asking for basically for loans from European countries that weren't interested in doing it. And so he's trying to go. And, anyway, it's a fascinating encounter. Yeah. But he is a man of such deep convictions. Uh, and, and those convictions he is willing to die for all yeah. through his life. That's such a way of living. I there's lots to be inspired by in, in that account. So I don't know if yeah. it's my favorite, but it's a favorite right now. Yeah, it's one that's standing out. I, I always, to be fair, that question is a rubbish question because what is your favorite book? <laughs> someone that reads is probably the hardest question you can ask. <laughs> well, and, and it just, these come and go, you know, the books that arrive. I do love yeah. to reread books. I'm not, I'm not someone who wants to read thousands of different books. Yeah. I do want to, but I still prefer the trade-off of, of reading and rereading classics and things that have made yeah. a difference to me uh okay and then and then you wanted a, a, a fiction a, novel um well one that i read it was a while ago but i you know i read anna karenina uh, and the, the circumstances were interesting i it was on a trip with my family and i said okay well we, we're not going to i'm not going to check email or be online the whole time so i downloaded yeah. that book and and um uh, I read that book while we were gone. I didn't check email for two and a half weeks, which is the longest nice. I've gone. Most people check, you know, including me, check regularly. Uh, and uh, average is like 200, 250 times a day. I think people are checking their phones. Uh, yeah. Email. 
so so anyway, Anna Karenina. I mean, it was just so different than I expected it to be. Such a such a modern novel, even mm. though it even though it's you know not set in you know, set in Russia and and it's not a modern setting at all. Mm. But it just reads like it could have been written yesterday. It's a fascinating, oh, really? really really enjoyable read. Okay, um, when was it? When was <laughs> when when was it published? Uh, well. Uh, roughly, roughly, got, roughly. <laughs> well, probably a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah. It's always interesting. I just, I've just reread Lord of the Flies. Around the Napoleonic Wars, when was that? Or, <laughs> for those that can't see me, my eyes just went really, really wide. Look, look Greg, I, I asked the questions here, Greg, all right? <laughs> um, no, I, again, I, see my comment about my but being surprised that, you know, not surprised, but appalled at my, at my own ignorance about the world. Uh, still, I wouldn't but, worry. Um, we can't know it all. What would be the point if we did? Uh, so what, 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 what were your next questions? I'm going to give you quick rapid fire answers to them. That was it. That was it. It was the, it was the two favorite books I'd written down about Cal Newport to see if that was something that was potentially sort of influenced um, essentialism in any way, or essentially maybe just reconfirmed certain parts of I think, like I think deep, deep work was, I think deep work was published after essentialism. Ah, well, there you go. I should have uh, but, done but, a research there. But, I, but they're definitely complementary. Uh, mm. and, and, and I just interviewed Cal for the Essentialism podcast. Oh, and, nice. And I just love what he's doing. And uh, he's, he's, he's himself is working on a new book, which I won't announce what it is. I didn't appreciate yeah, of that. Course. But, uh, but he's, uh, but, but I, you know, and then when he did, um, he wrote another book called uh, Digital Minimalism. That I wrote an endorsement yes. for him. Uh, because I, I think that uh, we're, 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 how would we say, uh, we're fighting, the, we're fighting on the same side. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, that's what it seems. And that's the one thing I, I love about sort of when, when you're reading sort of modern nonfiction, everyone just sort of, for the most part, seems to complement each other. Or maybe that's just the books that I'm choosing because yeah, I'm biased so. towards a certain sort of message that, that it, I maybe want to hear. Yes, um, maybe that's true. That's no, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, but I think you may be selecting for a certain new approach, and I think that is what mm. what uh, essentialism and deep work is all about. This uh, yeah. alternative path. Excellent. All right, Greg. Well, I will I will let you get on with your day. Um, you in America? Is that you got morning? You've got a whole day ahead of you. I do. I do, and I have a hard stop here. Just- well, thank you very much for listening in and sticking with it, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I do say that every time, but I do really, really mean it. I really do hope that you're enjoying these as much as I'm enjoying making them and doing them. As always, you can find us on Instagram at a need to read. And a little secret for you, little surprise. I've got a website now. So if you just go to www.aneedtoread.co.uk. It is in the early stages and there's a lot for me to add. Uh, But yeah, I've got a website. There's lots of book recommendations on there and there will only be more coming and blog posts and things like that. So head over there, www.aneedtoread. That is with the word to as opposed to the number .co.uk. And of course, follow us on Instagram. It's at a need to read with the number two as opposed to the word. But I hope you enjoyed it. hope you all have a lovely day, whatever you're doing. Take it easy.